traveling the world searching for equestrians of all breeds. The journey starts now on the International Equine Network. Hi, racing fans, horse fans, lovers of horses all around the world. We're here with the International Equine Network, and we're proud to present our weekly podcast called Flying Turns. My name is Steve Wolf. I've been on the show before, but today I'm filling in for the International Equine Network founder and host, Scott Miller. We're very sorry that Scott cannot be with us today as he's recovering from recent surgery, and hopefully he'll be back running the show next week. We hope for a speedy recovery for Scott. Today we have two special guests on our program. First, we're going to hear from harness racing horseman Freddie Hudson, who is head of the Harness Racing Alumni Show. Freddie will be talking about the hottest issue in racing now, the new Integrity Act that will affect both thoroughbred and standardbred racing throughout the United States. Freddie has been the most staunch lobbyist of sorts for the harness racing industry in Washington, D.C. Then we're going to be talking with Eric Cherry, founder of OnGate.com and their recent online auction and the results from that. We'll also be talking with Eric about the possible ending of harness racing at Pompano Park and what solutions the horsemen and women are facing if they must find a new venue to race at. But now I think, Don, that we have one of our guests. We have Freddie on the phone. Yeah, yes, I'm here, Steve, and thanks for having me. Okay, great. Uh, uh, Freddie, God, we, we go back about uh, 35 years or so since I, I met you at Freehold back in the 80s. Um, it might have been the 70s. <laughs> uh, now, that was a little before my time. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> but I was, I was a late bloomer in the sport. But I remember you, of course, as a trainer driver at Freehold, and the the infamous photograph that I saved from the fire in 1984 of you and S.J. Al. Tell the fans a little about him. Uh, S.J. Al was a horse that I raced uh, down in uh, at the Meadowlands and Freehold. Um, he was a little temperamental, and I had won uh, a race. To say the him. least. <laughs> I had won a race with him at Freehold, and as I was going into the winner's circle, he just decided to do a high silver and rear up in the air. And, you know, my instincts told me what to do. If I, if I move, he's coming over on top of me. So I just sort of bent over forward, threw the lines at him, let him stand up there, and then he just came down, and we went on away. And the track photographer happened to catch that photo. And as he hit the ground, I asked her, I said, did you get it? She shook her head, yes. And then, Steve, you, know, you ended up with the photo hanging in your office for uh, at Freehold. And it, when the fire occurred, that picture was in the uh, fire. Uh, it has a little water damage on it. Um, you saved the photo. And you had uh, Ted Black presented to me at Rosecroft Raceway a few years ago. I, I thank you for oh. that. <laughs> oh, no, I, I appreciate it. And so many people came into my office. In fact, that picture went from Freehold. I had it there for probably 10 years and then took it down to Pompano where it was in my office for almost 10 years until we reconnected and I was able to get it to Ted and get it back to you. But it, it, it was a classic photo. I mean, you're sitting in the, in, the, in the bike and this horse is standing straight up in the air 
and you are so calm and collective as if this horse does it every single day, but apparently he didn't. <laughs> no, that was that was I think the first and only time he did it. <laughs> but he, he did try and do something else with me down there. Um, going to the gate one day, uh, he he just he tried to jump the gate. I never <laughs> he left the he left as we were going to the gate. He left the ground. He went about five feet up in the air doing a leap, and as he came back down, uh, we were still moving, and everyone's like looking at me. And I just looked at these guys and I just, every all the other drivers and I said, "You guys don't know how glad I am to be here right now." <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but uh, that's some great memories from the past. But now we got to come forward uh, uh, to present day, and I think uh, as an advocate for the uh, uh, Horse Racing Integrity Act, you have been number one on the scene since the get go. But I want you to explain it because a lot of our uh, Listeners are uh, uh, equine, dressage, riding, and other sports. But give us a brief background of where we are with this bill. Well, the bill has, um, you know, been, has been has McConnell um, basically put it in the stimulus package, the last one that went out, and it was basically voted, and it is now a law. So the authority is now being set up, and the I think that they're, the deadline to have the nominations in for the board members was uh, is this Friday, um, and then they're going to have the medication authority and the um, authority committee and the um, safety committee underneath that board. So that is right. being set up, and that's moving forward. Um, can you can you tell us a little more detail of of what the bill entails? The bill is basically going to turn over the medication and enforcement of the drugs in racing horse racing over to the authority to be in charge of. Um, they're going to do some, they're going to change things around. They're going to do smart testing, uh, more out of competition testing. Um, smart testing means that if a trainer goes out there and all of a sudden he's like a 10% win trainer, and all of a sudden, boom, he starts winning left and right, and he's now a 30% win trainer, they're going to be testing all of his horses. Um, the enforcement is going to be coming from USADA, uh, USADA is going to have people undercover. They're going to have people all over, and they're going to be doing a lot of uh, taking a lot of tips. Uh, Travis Taggart is the person in charge of USADA. He's going to be the board, the chair of the board. Uh, he's the person that caught Lance Armstrong. And uh, mm -hmm. Travis Travis said that on their tip line in the Olympic drugs, uh, they basically caught. About 22% of the people they caught, they caught from tips that came in from people within within the sport. And so, there's going to be some really, really different rules coming. Well, let me ask you this: um, It's going to be a little expensive to set this all up. Who's going to pay for it? Well, that's a good question, and they haven't decided on that yet. But from part of the cost is going to come from. The state racing commissions, as they're going to transfer their uh, how they collect the money over to um, the um, horse racing integrity authority. Right so from the from the current testing system. Correct. Correct. Those correct. monies will get transferred over. Correct. Uh, is, there's is going, there to be, going to be. Go ahead. Now, there's going to be more costs. It's probably going to be a little bit more costly, and there's other different ideas, and it's going to be left up to each individual state. 
So in, in essence, one state could say, hey, you know, we're, uh, the federal government is now policing the racing industry. There, there's more costs involved. Will some of that perhaps come out of the horseman's purse account? Uh, it's possible. It's going to be left up to each state. Like, you know, New York is already pulling. You know, they already charged the horseman $19 per start. <clears throat> so that money would be transferred over to the authority. And then the authority has some power to take out some loans to get off the ground. Um, so they'll probably be taking out some loans. And it's, it's, going, to, it's going to go into effect between January um, 1st, 2022, and July 1st, uh, 2022. Well, now tell me about um, uh, some of the problems, uh, stepping stones you've had, hurdles you've had to cross both, I think, in, with between the thoroughbred and the standardbred racing. Well, well the thoroughbreds have been pretty much on board with it. Um, our industry is not. Um, the, um, many of our major breeders are on board, and they're there, but a lot of the, the USDA is not on board with it. Um, That's they have the a, United States Trotting Association. Correct. Uh, they have a, they've just put together a committee to discuss it, and basically, they're trying to write out their uh, what our industry wants um, to basically opt in. Um, there is an opt-in option for us, um, but we have to look at the bigger picture. Um, if we don't opt in, you know, as the state racing commissions can actually opt us in for that particular state. But and the other issue, if they don't opt us in, if the racing commission doesn't opt us in. That could leave us not having paramutual racing in that state. So there are some things that we have to look at. And we have to be very cautious with. Um, many uh, of the understandable. Uh, let uh, me let me ask this. In the beginning, it seemed that it was going to be an overall rule change for both breeds, and then uh, the USTA and some other factors did come out and say they don't want to be involved. They don't want to be connected with this because of the obvious, and that is a standard red horse and a thoroughbred horse, when it comes to racing, they have completely different standards of, of um, medication rules and things, especially Lasix and, uh, uh, and, and other administration of uh, approved drugs by veterinarians. And are, are they still going to be separated here? Okay. First of all, whoever said that there were, we were going to have one-size-fits-all that's a that's a misconception. Um, that is not the truth. It's always mm -hmm. been that it's going to be breed specific. Uh, so we're going to have different rules for than what the thoroughbreds have, and that has always been told to me right up front from the first day that I started. And anyone who said otherwise is is just not telling the truth. No, uh, yeah. and uh, Travis South Taggart worded it. Uh, he said it's going to be set up the way it is in the Olympics. Different sports have different medication rules, and so that's going to be the same way once this bill, once, once the harness racing opts in. Now, harness racing is not opt into this bill at this particular point. The USTA is still against it. Well, they're they're starting to come around, and you know they're they're going to have to come in. Otherwise, we could destroy our sport. Uh, we we could end up without a sport if they don't come in. Uh, understandable, and uh, and while it's going to be you know an added uh, expense, it's also going to be something that 
the racing industry can say, you know, we're policed better now than ever before and that they can have faith in, 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 in wagering on the races. So it's going to add more confidence to the public in our sport. And, you know, like, as you know, many, especially you, you've been down in Florida, many of the trainers that have left the sport and owners that have left the sport left the sport because of the um, drug problem in the sport. And, you know, I can't tell you how many people have told me that. You know, if, if you clean the sport up, I might come back in. I might buy a few more horses. Exactly. Uh, that's, that's a big point. And, and, you know, they've just lost so so many people. You know, I think in 1990, we had like 40,000 members in the USDA. And now we're down to 16,000. So That's we have correct. To, I, re- I remember that. And, it's, yeah, we have to, uh, we have to start. And, and, and the same goes for the thoroughbred racing, too. Yes. And, you know, when I started the um, Harness Racing Alumni Association, I, I took a look at the statistics and I realized that there were more former members of the USDA than there were current members of the USDA. <laughs> well, yeah, that, that, that's a tough one. And, and, of course, the sport was so great from uh, the 1950s, 60s, 70s, 80s. And a lot of those people, sadly, matriculation has, has you know, they've, They've gone by the wayside, and they haven't been replaced. No, and there was a you know, I, as you know, I ran for the presidency of the USTA, and right. when I started when I started to run for the presidency, I did a lot of research as to what the thoroughbreds had done, and what I found is that they have done most of the work for us. Uh, they've done all the surveys, they've done done all the plans, and everything. There's the whole blueprint is right there, and all we have to do is copy it. <clears throat> to bring our sport back, uh, I don't think we can bring it back to the glory days that we had, oh, you know, back in the uh, '60s and '70s. But I do think that we could basically bring our sport back. Oh, I agree with you 110 percent. If the right people are, are put in charge and some changes, drastic or as they say, draconian efforts need to be made. I mean, I'm, I'm a staunch believer that. Even if it if needed to help this uh, 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 Safety Integrity Act come to fruition, the sport, especially harness racing, it, it, it needs to start doing things immediately to help itself. And the only way it can do that, in my opinion, is is by taxing every purse race. In other words, taking 5% of every purse race in uh, – the United States and putting it into a marketing fund where they can have five and six million dollars to help promote the sport and, and come up with, with plans for age groups actually getting young people involved. Uh, you know, the I can't even think the X factors, the millennials, the uh, you got to keep the um, uh, people our age, the um. Uh, I don't want to say uh, I can't think of the name right now. The uh, the, the term for our our age, baby boomers. Keep them <laughs> I, thought happy. Gonna, I, thought, I thought you were going to say old people. <laughs> old people. No, no, I kept myself from that. But the, the, the baby boomers need to be kept happy with the wager, which some tracks are doing. Meadowlands is doing a superb job up there oh, yeah. in, in attracting new people, and and they're wagering. Lately, uh, they've been doing just two days a week, and they're doing seven million in 
in total handle. And granted, a lot of it is simulcast money, but when you get up into the millions of dollars now, you know, for literally for every million of simulcasting, you're, you're, you know, putting $30,000 in your pocket. You know, you have a night that you do four million. That's $120,000. That's uh, more than what is, uh, uh, purses being paid. And thus, uh, you know, everybody's happy and they're racing for good purses and, the competition there has been great, and it's it's you know an example of what can be done. But if we can't raise millions of dollars to spend annually on proper marketing and stuff, and getting new people into the sport, we're we're just going to keep going downhill. Correct, and and Jason Settlemore, you know, as a director of the USDA, has presented that idea to the board of directors. On two occasions, and on both occasions, the board of directors of the USDA shot them down. They would not basically take 5% of the gaming money and put it into a marketing plan, a national marketing plan. Totally, know, total, it's, it's it's totally ridiculous. Outrageous. And, and because you can also do this with the uh, auctions and breeding. I mean, every facet of, of racing needs to uh, hmm, dig deep in their pockets and invest in the future. Otherwise, there won't be one. That's correct. But Absolutely. Now, let, let's turn the tide a little bit here. Let's uh, talk about uh, your Harness Racing Alumni Association. I mean, uh, it, it's something that started out with one main plan, and that was uh, Roosevelt Raceway. But now it's, it's spread. The, the alumni club has grown by leaps and bounds. And tell us about your monthly newsletter and the shows, uh, the weekly uh, shows you do with Trey Martin and Bob Marks. Yeah, well, I'll start, I'll start with the show. The show, uh, we're coming close to our 100th, 100th show. Uh, I wow. think this, uh, this week's show, uh, we have um, oh, Gordon Banks on again, and that was released today, and that's our mm-hmm. 96th show. Um Eric, Eric, who's coming on a little bit later, he was on the week a few weeks ago. Eric Jerry, uh, he was great. And um, let's see, we started the show, and it's just kept on growing, and it just kept on growing. And we now have you know about ten thousand listeners on the show, which is pretty wow. Good. That's 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 real impressive. And, and then uh, the, the, the other, and you guys, is, you guys don't beat around the bush either. <laughs> no, <laughs> we, we need some, we uh, originally we were going to be an alumni show talking about the history of the sport, but then we, all of a sudden we realized nobody's actually doing any news to um, for the sport, and so we sort of became a let's give you the news channel. <laughs> well, uh, that, but that's all. That's uh, all good, and and, and it's it's something but, positive that we need in the sport that people can listen to and. and find out what's going on from leaders in the industry. That's always Correct. great. And, and then, you know, we've had a lot of the animal wellness uh, groups come on also. You know, I've had Marty Irby on the show a couple times. And when Marty's on the show, uh, Marty goes out and uh, he takes our show after it's recorded and sends it out to 6,000 media sources. <laughs> wow, so you're getting out all over the place. The, 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 the podcast is one of the biggest growing segments in the media industry. In fact, uh, Disney and another couple other big channels are spending millions of dollars in in setting up uh, 
these national podcasts that we see all over the place. You know, uh, yes, it, it's just I think it's uh, I think it's great. It's it's another source of uh, of learning, education, entertainment. I mean, they're 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 all great. Right, and I'll also talk a little bit, you know, about trade. You know, trade is excellent. You know, trade, trade. Um, you know, he's won a Grammy with BB um, King. Um, he's won. Uh, he's been nominated for like thirteen or fourteen Creo Awards. That's for best commercials. Uh, you know, he's done arrangements and stuff like that for multiple movies. Uh, I think he starred had a role in The Sopranos, the TV series, but uh, I'm not a hundred percent sure on that. And, you know, he's done a tremendous amount, but a lot, and he's taught me a lot. He's taught me to change my voice a little bit when I'm on the air. Um, Bob Marks has been great. You know, he's a Hall of Fame journalist. Uh, Bob likes to put the questions together and sort of likes to be in the background as a director-producer. And so the three of us, we work really well together, and we've had a lot of fun doing the show. And no, it's worked have... out great. Tell, tell us a little about the newsletter. Yeah, the newsletter... Um, I started, we're coming up to, I think it's our 32nd or 33rd issue coming out now, and started the newsletter with the uh, start of the um, Alumni Association. And the newsletter has about 3,000 to 4,000 readers per uh, month. And, uh, That's ex- excellent. And folks, you can go to, uh, correct U- me US if I'm Trots. wrong, but you, I'm sorry. Yeah, U.S. Trots. Uh, just us trot us dot com yep and you're right there on okay. the front page that's 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 the um alumni news that's the alumni website mm-hmm. so there you go us trot dot com trots trots t-r-o-t-s okay we want to make sure we got that right us trots dot com and i know you have a number of people that write for that too correct you know, I've had um, Monica Bentel was writing for us for a while, and she decided to take a break. Um, Smiley um, Oscar, uh, he was uh, writing for us for a little bit, and then he took a little break. Uh, Charles Martino, uh, Bob Marks does a lot of writing, Susan Arrington. Uh, I'll write articles when I have a chance now, but uh, I, I'm so busy with so many other things, I don't have a chance to write anymore. So. No, I understand that. And but, Freddie, let me go back a little bit because we we've talked in the past of what you've done and how you've campaigned, and that you've single-handedly been one of the top lobbyists for harness racing in Washington D.C., especially with the Integrity Act. Uh, correct, and the and the Safe Act, the uh, Safeguard American Food Exports uh, to end yes. the horses for, for end the horses being slaughtered. I've lobbied on those two bills. And you, and so, but tell us your your your. Stomping the halls and stalking out our legislators. <laughs> yeah, well, you make appointments and then you go over there and you meet with them. Uh, so far, I've probably had between four and five hundred appointments. So uh, uh, this wow. year, you know, we, we shut down. I I lobbied really hard with um, Marty Irby, uh, Hal Handel, and Owen Riley, who uh, works for American. Consultants, which is Sean Smiley's lobbyist, lobbyist firm, who uh, he's the uh, he's the jockey club's lobbyist, and so we attended between 75 and 80 meetings this this before the you know 2020 before the uh, the government closed up, and we were doing every Wednesday 12 to 14 meetings, 
Uh, I mean, you talk about your feet killing you after these. <laughs> after walking the walk. Oh, I and, can't imagine having to walk walk out there and do and and wait and get the appointments and then off to the next one and the next one. It's uh, uh, you're a better man for it, Freddie. <laughs> and uh, who else? Uh, Michelle Crawford came in for the hearing. Uh, she came in, mm-hmm. and uh, Art, Art Gray, uh, presiding judge, um, Danny Kazmaier, presiding judge. Uh, sure. They were all there for the hearings. And then no, they uh, are all good people, too. Oh, yeah. Good people in our industry. And, you know, well, Freddie, uh, yes, go ahead. Uh, one of the other things I found out was that um, in lobbying in Washington, D.C., none of the politicians know who, know anything about our sport. And so when I go into these meetings... Uh, I have to ask my first question. I ask them is, uh, they're familiar with the bills and so forth. They, they're all familiar with the bills. And then the next question is, are you familiar with harness racing? Ninety-nine percent of the people say they don't have a clue as to what harness racing is. So wow, then I go that's... and explain them uh, what harness racing is, and I use the statistics from the American Horse Council uh, <laughs> to basically tell them, you know, we're uh, you know a 1.5 billion dollar industry, and that's as much as that on us, and almost uh, half a billion in purses annually. So, but you know, that's that sort of wakes them up, doesn't it? Yes, uh, and then 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 we go on with the meeting. So. Well, you, you've got a, a busy schedule, which is good. It keeps you out of trouble. But do, tell me, do you miss training and driving? Um, sometimes, um, I'm. You know, I, I can jump behind any. I got a bunch of friends that I can go jump behind their horses anytime that I want to. Uh, I probably miss the race itself. Being in the race is um, exciting, and that's that's fun. But, uh, well, but I, I think if I came back now, I'd just be in everyone's way. So. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. You made it through without too many bumps and bruises, so uh, you have good memories of that. But listen, I want to thank you very much for being our guest on our show. And, of course, good luck with uh, coming up on your 100th edition of uh, the Harness Racing Alumni Show. That is just superb. And, of course, we want to thank you again and wish you all the best luck in the future, Freddie. No, uh, thank you very much, Steve. It was my pleasure being on your show. Anytime. Okay, you got it. Well, folks, before uh, we have a couple minutes before our next guest comes on here, I wanted to let everybody know, uh, as we're at International Equine Network, that coming up this Sunday in, uh, at the Hippodrome Paris-Vincennes is the 400,000 euro Prix de Paris. This is a classic marathon race for trotters. The distance is 4,150 meters or nearly 2.5 miles. And there's 16 starters in the race. So, uh, just like uh, the Derby, the Fountain of Youth, and the Thoroughbred ones, over in Europe they race anywhere from uh, 16 to 18, even 20 horses in a race, depending on, on what the distance is. And uh, unlike most of the harness races in North America that strictly go at a distance of one mile, the races in, in France and Europe are typically a mile and a sixteenth, a mile and an eighth, mile and a half, and of course, uh, uh, the Prix de Paris, which is the, the richest marathon race in all of harness racing, $400,000, and they're going to go almost two and a half miles, 
it's going to be a classic, and most of the top trotters in all of Europe are competing in it. The only one that is missing is the two-time Prix de Marique winner, um, FaceTime Bourbon, and he's elected to take off uh, uh, another week and, and race later in March in another uh, uh, stakes event. Uh, other news that we have going on uh, is there's been an outbreak of strangles in Canada. Um, it's a feared word amongst everyone in the horse racing industry for this dreaded disease. The first outbreak of strangles took place in the stable area of Charlottetown Driving Park on PEI about a month or so ago. Then two horses that had left the stable area before the outbreak went to Quebec, where they were discovered to have um, the strangles virus. The Canadian Agriculture Department is, of course, on top of the situation. Uh, the barn areas have been uh, quarantined until they, these horses can uh, get well and get tested uh, uh, negative for the uh, strangles virus. And, and we hope that's uh, going to be some of the last that we hear about it because once it spreads to a general population, um, this disease can be somewhat deadly. But now, folks, we're going to talk with uh, someone who I've been uh, a friend and uh, worked for, actually, at one point for many, many years ago. I think we've been together about 35 years, the founder of OnGate.com, the founder of the um, – Eric Cherry helped me. It was uh, – yeah, we'll, uh, we'll call it the National, National Race Line. How's that? National Race Line. I knew I'd bring it out of me. Hey, Eric, welcome yeah. aboard. Thanks for coming on. Hey, Steve. Hey, Steve. How are you doing today? Uh, we're, we're doing good. I mean, uh, we just had a nice talk with uh, um, Freddie Hudson about the Integrity Act and what that's going to mean for racing. Now we want to mm -hmm. talk about what's going on with racing. And most importantly, you're on gate.com, which was uh, the first online uh, service where people could buy and sell horses without having to send them into the big sales, the big commissions. I mean, you're going worldwide with OnGate, aren't you? Oh, yeah, yeah absolutely. You know, we, people, if you ask people, when did we start OnGate, most people would guess five, six years ago. But the fact is, uh, Maurice Kodesh, my you know, co-founder and I, started it back in 2001. And at the time, you know, like people always say, um, oh, you know, nobody would ever buy a horse online. You have to be at a live auction. You've got to inspect it. And over the years, like everything else has evolved to online, as we've seen through this pandemic more than anything, uh, is be, we actually sell more horses than any other venue in North America. Um, you know, people are given uh, a few days to check out the horse if they don't know it, and then either it's either just listed or more and more we're doing auctions. And we actually sold the highest price horse ever at auction at Standard Bread. I remember Atlanta, we sold her for 1575000 And had over 25,000 people view the page. It was, um, that was a Atlanta, the Hamiltonian winner. And it, it was awesome checking on the site and, and watching the bidding fly. Yeah. You know, so at this point, we do everything from weanlings, broodmares, you know, racehorses, pretty much every category stallion breedings, um, and as a matter of fact, uh, uh, because of the pandemic, some of the um, regular sale sales, you know, with a physical venue like uh, up in London, Canada, you know, the Far City sale, they went ahead and um, they went virtual last year, and it was by the only sale 
in North America where the averages were actually higher than the year before. Um, so, you know, you get more people that can actually go and uh, bid. You know, we have over 12,000 registered bidders worldwide. You know, um, we do a lot of business in Europe, you know, some from uh, down under, Australia, New Zealand, um, and obviously North America. The um, and and it's and it's very easy for uh, an owner and and trainer, let's say uh, up north, to call upon a friend or someone to go and check a horse out, and and they can you know have it done, or it can be as they call vetted out by a veterinarian and checked before the sale, and like you said, then they can bid online. Yeah, no, a- a- absolutely. Um, it's really no different. Then a regular, you know, the way you would check out a horse that you, you know, when you get a catalog, that's you know, two or three weeks before the auction, you know, people spend the time checking it out. Uh, it's really no different than this. The only difference is the ease of bidding. Uh, you just don't have to physically be there and wait two hours to be bid. As a matter of fact, because, you know, the um, seller determines when the horse actually sells, we have a, a, a feature where 30 minutes before the auction ends, um, we t- text you to remind you so you can go on with everything you do during the day. And then just, you know, so you don't forget about it, we send you a text. We also have another feature where um, you never get outbid because the clock runs out. Uh, even though an auction might be scheduled to end at 2 p.m., um, it doesn't really end until no one has put a bid in for two minutes. So if somebody bids at 159, then it goes to 201. Somebody bids at 201, it goes to 203. But this way, we make sure we get as much money as we can for the horse, and everybody that wants to bid uh, can. Oh, no, I, I think since its inception, it's been great. And, of course, now you, you, you've gotten a little bit more competition. There's other groups, like you said, that are, are doing the online bidding and stuff, but... I don't think any of them have the reach or, or, oh. or power that I'm well, At this point, I'm pretty much, I think, actually, uh, I think they're pretty much either dormant or closed. Um, they're, you know, the couple that have tried it um, haven't really had a real auction in, in weeks. And mm-hmm. if you go to one of the sites, it says under maintenance, and hopefully they'll be back. Uh, so at this point, it's, it's very, very hard because, you know, if somebody is first to market, you know, if you had a horse for sale, you want to go where, you know, there's 12,000 registered bidders or someplace that's just been open for a month or two. You know, um, it would be very difficult at this point, you know, to jump in and get critical mass. Right. I understand that. And and I can yeah. attest having, having, you know, years ago when my father and I had horses of selling one of our decent trotting mares, putting her up for sale, and, and within... 24 hours, I had three people bidding on her, and then next thing you know, the horse was sold. Next day, the money's in the purse account, and, and everything was taken care of. I mean, it's just a great, great service for the horse people. Now, tell me, you, you've recently or are still in the midst of, uh, of uh, an auction going on now? Um as far as am I in the midst of it? We we there's always auctions going on. Oh, there's always um, auctions, but I, I know that I saw a story it, about um, a, a big auction that you were having. Just oh, just okay. So you know, we're we're, we're planning. You know, if you're talking about the yearling sale, 
Uh, every yes, year we have the yearling sale um, in September um, where the horses get listed somewhere around early June and people have the whole summer to check out the horses because they're spread around all these different farms. And then we have our annual yearling sale in September. Um, and that, you know, I believe is, you know, I think the date is the 25th or thereabouts. But, um, you know, we just announced the date and we, we pick a date that doesn't conflict with any of the other um, physical sales. So this way everybody can be focused and don't really compete with each other. Well, I hope that's going to uh, go off and, and, and work out big time. I also wanted to talk to you because you're very familiar with this. Um, and, and you know I'm also uh, the editor of HarnessLink.com in North America. I, I, and I've noticed the majority of feature races at the harness tracks in North America recently have been won by Australian and New Zealand horses. It seems that in the older classes of horse racing, the down-under imports are kicking the USA's butt to a degree. Perhaps, you know, the better... USA horses aren't uh, are getting geared up for the season, perhaps in March. But more and more owners I see in the USA are importing horses from down under, and it looks like the majority of them are turning out to be very sound investments. Well, you know, without knowing what you pay for them, there are some that are very successful, and a lot of them do find their way to the winner circle. You don't see all the ones that don't make it. Um, but the problem is, what you see is more indicative. Because, it's, you know, look, it's expensive to bring a horse over. It's cost somewhere between twenty and $25,000 U.S. to ship a And that's uh, one way. Down. That's one way, yep, and probably coach, right? So, um, you know, so basically, though, what, it's really what you're seeing is the problem of the horse shortage. And I call it a shortage. It's really an imbalance, you know, versus the amount of racetracks versus how many horses you need to run. You know, years ago, there's a couple of reasons for for the shortage of horses here is um, that people that don't breed for the top of the sport are are not really incented to breed, uh, you know, uh, young horses. And um, things that we can do to make it better, you know, there's a limit on how many um, mares can breed to a specific stallion. Um, you know, with technology now, they have ET, which is embryo transfer or embryo transplant, where you can use, a mare could actually have more than one foal a year by having a surrogate carry it. Well, unfortunately, you're allowed to do that with one foal, but there's a limit on what you can do. One of the um, uh, rules that I tried to implement was to allow a mare to have two foals a year. Um, and that would provide not only more horses, but it also would give uh, mares that were done racing, you know, where we like, how do you care for a mare? It's very expensive when she's done. You don't want to see them, you know, slaughtered or, you know, you want to, you know, there's many good organizations finding homes for them. But this would give a second career to a lot of these mares that weren't um, bred well enough to be brood mares, but could definitely healthy enough to carry a fall. And if we did that, that would um, alleviate the shortage as well as, even provide a good uh, use for these mares. But unfortunately, you know, people don't like change. And the only reason mares only have one foal is because that was nature up until recently with technology, where a stallion can have as many, pretty much as many as you want. So, you know, since we haven't gone down that road, you know, you, you've seen the reason to bring so many of these horses from down under over 
And yes, they're very competitive because we're not bringing over the bad ones. We're just bringing over the good ones. That's right. That's right. Yeah, it, it, it has uh, embryo transplant. I, I, I think your, your point is, is well taken and that the horse shortage is very prevalent in North America, and it's only going to get worse if rules like what you're talking about are not enacted. Yep. Now, let's talk about the, the I guess, blockbuster news that came out of Pompano Beach just this week, the fact that uh, uh, the horsemen and women racing at Pompano Park have been given, I guess, some people say it's not an ultimatum. I feel it is an ultimatum. And that is if they're, I guess, willing to uh, take the license, paramutual license, and move someplace else, uh, the ILL Eldorado at Pompano Park uh, will assist them in every way. But if not, uh, and if they don't drop the, the, the lawsuit preventing them from racing there, it looks like the uh, horsemen are going to have to find a new location to race at. And I don't think that's an easy chore in the state of Florida. Well, and, you know, it all comes down to what is the end goal, right? And you've got to take a step back and, and figure, you know, what makes economic sense and what are you looking to accomplish? And, you know, originally when Pompano started, you know, it was a premier place um, to race, and it was a great winter, you know, capital, they called it winter capital racing. Over the years, you know, the quality of racing, um, it, the handle has been wonderful lately. But overall, you know, you just really can't make it with just simulcast money. You know, when originally when they started simulcasting, that was gravy, but now it's really become the meat and the potatoes, right? And right. what you earn from simulcasting is nowhere near, like, on track. So when you do the numbers, it's a tough road if you're going to depend just on simulcasting money to make your track work at those levels. So, you know, yeah, the ones, um, but the problem is, we all know, that land has just become so valuable that no matter how well the track did as a track, it just wouldn't pay not to develop that property, right? Correct. So that, that's really the pull. You know, that's really the problem that everyone's facing. What you know, even if they, even if the you know their intentions are good, for the shareholder perspective, everyone has to recognize what that property is worth. You know, and try to come up with a solution that works for everybody, and maybe. The answer is to totally revamp, you know, what what Florida does as far as harness racing goes, since that is the only venue. And if you move it to Orlando, you know, is that or north of Orlando or a place where property is less expensive, is that really going to accomplish what everyone's looking for? I don't know the answer, right? No, it's, saying it's, that it's... It, you know, maybe a, a viable alternative would do something, take the extra money that they're going to do and change it, make it into a more of a, a breeding award where we don't depend on paramutual racing, but use money to breed horses from using stallions from other states to breed high-end horses here that get to race for, you know, a short period of time on a non-betting venue, but to stimulate the farms and the breeding end of it. You know, again, I don't know if that's the answer. It's just that it's a really tough to think you can be able to do something in South Florida, if you had to build a venue, you know. Right. Um, it, it's very good. And, and there's also the the statutes that are in place that are, are 50 right. years old and more that make it even more of a hindrance because the, there's yeah. one statute that states harness racing 
has to be conducted or cannot be conducted paramutually until 7 p.m. at night. It's strictly right. a night event. But uh, I would think right. that depending on if, if they were to find another location to race, even for just the sire stakes and uh, uh, the sunshine stakes that they have, that uh, they what do you call it? They could they could get a, a the statute changed or amended. I think you know depending no, no, yeah, on where think, they are. And, yeah, yeah. I, I would think so. And I think that one thing to maybe look at is to change it where we breed a product that when the sire stakes are over, you'd have a viable product left instead of what we have today. And I don't, I'm not meaning to knock, you know, um, what the product is right now as far as the Florida breads. But we all know they're not the elite Grand Circuit type horses, so there might be a way to do something like you know Kentucky did, where you breed horses from anywhere in Florida, racing on a non-paramutual basis, right? Where you have a since a lot of people do come to Florida for the winters, you race down here and then you ship those horses north where they can compete against anybody, and that might well, be well, and they all, they also be able to. Uh... Uh, race in those those brief Florida stakes, but yet be eligible yes. for the sire Correct. stakes in, in a more productive, more purse orientated right. state. Um, that's that, kind of what that's I'm thinking, a, but a real good idea. And because uh, there's been talk, and I know that uh, the facility that you used to own, the South Florida Trotting Center, uh, could be a, a, a possible place to to hold oh, races. Absolutely, whether, you know, this Trotting Center as well as um, Sunshine Meadows yeah, it, down here. You know, I'm sure we could work something out with both those places if it worked out. Yeah. Well, I, I just found out, Eric, that, that Sunshine Meadows cannot hold paramutual races because their property right. is in a agricultural designated, right. and that and that yeah. will never right. be able to get changed. And, and, but, and I really uh, think that our solution wouldn't be through the paramutual. I think that it's worth it. It might be worth it for all concerned is worth something out that we agree to move it and limit what we do to try to build a better product, but yet allow um, the IL to maximize their property for the shareholders and everyone's benefit. Mm -hmm. And the horsemen could get a benefit because of being involved and having to give permission. So, you know, that's kind of what I think, but then again, I have not been asked yet (laughs) to be pulled into it, you know, so we'll see what happens. Yeah, it'll be an interesting case. In fact, I believe by Friday or Monday, uh, all the dates have to be into the Florida uh, Gaming Commission for uh, uh, 2021-2022. And I'm sure that the aisle are going to put in for the harness racing dates and probably maybe have a stipulation in there in the event of a change. But uh, right. sadly, and I, I, and I heard too. That, no matter what they were doing, probably would, they'd have to figure and get permits anyway. From what I understand, they probably would run one more year anyway. Um, but again, right. I have no inside information there at all. Yeah, that I'm pretty sure that there's maybe one one last year or hurrah set up there. But again, when you're faced with a, such a dire situation, you've you've got to come up and. and do the best plan you can, and hopefully the FSBOA will be able to work something out with the aisle, and and who knows where. I actually had someone tell me that the Florida Horse Park up in Ocala could be a a really great location if they wanted to run like a two-month meet, you know, to have all their stake races and stuff, and that they could do it 
on a paramutual basis, make it part of the horse park so that people can come there and, and make it into uh, a, a good training facility that uh, can have it. And, of course, in a, in a place like Ocala, with the exception of Tampa Bay Downs, I don't think anyone would argue, because uh, I'm thinking, <laughs> I remember yeah. what it cost to maintain the lighting system at Pompano and to put in a new For lighting sure. system on a track hey. today. Even a half-mile track is going to cost $600,000. Oh, yeah. Like I always say, in business and in life, evolve or die. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Well, that's putting it straight out there. That's for sure. Now, tell me, are there any other ventures that we miss that you've been involved in? Well, better yet, how how your state is going. uh, Well, this is the time of year. Yeah. So this is the time of year. Um, that you really just don't, you know, you don't want to, you don't have to be the top of the class. You just don't want to be at the bottom. Um, mm-hmm. you, you know, these horses are bred so well that pretty much every horse is still going forward unless there's a major issue. Um, so, you know, we'll see. The one thing that I'm very interested in is that, you, you know, is how much I've committed to a horse called Heston Blue Chip. And this yes. will be his first crop for me racing in New York the next year's Pennsylvania. I got a lot of high hopes for him. They seem to be very smart and doing everything right. But, you know, I don't want to sound like, a, you know, a parent. So we will wait and see what happens. Um, but so far, I'm very enthused um, with the way the reports I'm getting across mm-hmm. the board on them. Well, um, Huston was a heck and, of a racehorse. You know, and we'll see. And, you know, babies are being born right now. Um, I have a little over about 100 being born this year. So we get back at a horse today. So yeah, it's kind of interesting. And the only other thing about, I've done about lately, your, I've got. Do you have some th- two coming three-year-olds now that are uh, you look forward yeah. to seeing? Race? We have we have some we have two coming three. A nice filly, Marcella Hanover, who was a pretty nice filly. Mm-hmm. But one thing I've yes. done a little bit differently. Um, I've started actually leasing my mare, some of my mares for a year. So if somebody wants. Um, to breed a nice horse, but don't have doesn't have a mare that crosses well, or they don't want to make the investment, but they only want to do it for one year, such as the first crop stallion. Um, I've taken one of my mares, uh, the pretty nice mare, dropped the ball, and she's being bred mm-hmm. to Poppy Rob Hanover. Uh, I leased her to Dave McDuffie this year, um, just so he gets the baby. She's still my mare, and I made a deal with him where I at least dropped the ball to him for one year, and I'm starting to do that more and more where we're offering our mares to be leased, almost like a car. Um, but, I, you know, ownership doesn't change. They just get the benefit of the cross for the one year. And um, it's not cheap or inexpensive, but it's a lot less than if you had to go out and buy a mare. So exactly. it was a venture that we started doing. Because uh, at the sales alone, the, the, the decent mares are bringing, you know, if, you, if you're not willing to spend, it looks like a quarter million dollars. That's what it takes to oh, get, yeah. you know, for sure. a, a t- top, for sure. top mare. I know they paid an yeah, awful for lot sure. more for that sh- for Shark Nen, and I know uh, oh, yeah. we'll be curious to see yeah, how. And that's a foreign mare, which is a little risky. Exactly. You know, a risky. Yeah, that you don't see you know? as much of. No. Well, no. I want to thank you, Eric, okay. for coming on the show. Oh, no, it's any, it's any, always great. Any time, any time at all. Okay, and, um, you know, uh, have a great day. Okay, you thank you, and folks, the... Uh, Always remember, okay. if uh, you're looking in the sale business, OnGate.com is uh, probably the top uh, location to, to auction off your horses. Uh, you know, folks, uh, 
we cover racing around the world in the International Equine Network. And we have a story here that most people don't know about, and that there's actually harness racing in Bermuda. And they, but they wear regular driving colors. They don't wear Bermuda shorts. Oh, God, I had to get that one in. They race standard bred ponies, which are smaller than the average racehorse, and they have a huge club in Bermuda that organizes the weekly races on the island. But sadly, the club recently announced that they have ended the 2020-2021 race season due to COVID, and they do race for uh, at least six months of the year. They actually have been closed due to COVID since December, and now with the rise in the COVID-19 cases, they've elected to end the race season. But years ago, when I first learned that there was harness racing in uh, Bermuda, I was uh, fascinated. And most recently, the two years ago, a young man, uh, he was 19 years old by the name of Kiwan Waldron, uh, came over and raced in Quebec, where he ended up being the leading driver on the Quebec Fair Circuit. And on the finals day, where I saw him race at the Hippodrome 3R in Quebec, this young man won four of the 12 finals. He finished second three times, third twice. I mean, the young man, this uh, Kiwan Waldron, please remember, because one day he's going to be able to come back here to the USA and drive. Uh, and he obviously, uh, you know, has quite capable hands and is pretty good in the race bike. But, yes, there is harness racing in Bermuda if you're planning a vacation uh, next season. Now, despite the uh, standard bred yearling sales, uh, despite, I should say, COVID-19, the standard bred yearling sales recently conducted in Christchurch, New Zealand, broke numerous sales records and was up 10% in sales over the prior year. And that's just uh, great news down under. And the sale topper was a Better's Delight Colt that broke all records, bringing in 320 thousand dollars that that's a heck of a price for a, a a yearling down under now um because of the weather many of the tracks outside across north america have been able to race due to the extreme changes in the weather this is really shown in the last few weeks first all the snow that everyone's been getting along with the bone chilling freezing cold temperatures has closed tracks and just as the tracks are getting back into business now the weather becomes so warm that everything melts and begins to defrost the track surfaces, and they become a quagmire of uh, sticky mud surface that's unable to race on. Uh, just yesterday, Buffalo Raceway and Monticello Raceway had to close. Before that, Dover Downs had missed a day. The Meadows, uh, in fact, uh, all, all most of the racetracks in North America have had to cancel at least a few days these past few weeks. Hopefully that groundhog in Pennsylvania is wrong in his prediction about, and, uh, about springtime, and it'll be right around the corner. But, of course, you can't count Pompano Park or Gulfstream Park, as they're in South Florida, same as where I am. And our weather has been superb all winter long. I'm sorry, I had, I had to rub that in a little. But we're getting close to the end of the show, and before that, we want to talk a little bit about the Kentucky Derby, the 2021 Kentucky Derby, the first Saturday in May. The rankings have been coming out and are updated daily on who are the leaders. Uh, right now, probably the number one horse is Essential Quality. He was a 2020 Breeders' Cup Juvenile winner. He's getting ready to go February 27th in the Southwest States. 
And coming up this Saturday is a major event on the road to the Kentucky Derby. It's uh, the, uh, I'm sorry, it is the Fountain of Youth, a grade two stake that's taking place Saturday at Gulfstream Park. It's the 74th edition of this great race. The top uh, entry is Greatest Honor. Uh, this cult has emerged as one of the leading derby prospects after his five-and-a-three-quarter-length romp in the Holy Bull at Gulfstream. He has Jose Ortiz back on board again, purses 300000 in the Fountain of Youth, and uh, the points earned towards the derby are very, very important. In fact, five of the ten horses in the race are in the uh, top ten uh, selections for derby contenders. The Fountain of Youth is a mile in the 16th race, and uh, I'm sorry, the, uh, and they get a point system of 50, 20, 10, and, and 5 point scale towards the May 1st Kentucky Derby. So the, the Derby's coming up, and it, it's going to be a, a big event there. And uh, we're just about wrapped up here for today. I want to thank everyone for who's been listening in. Hope you enjoyed the show. But we really hope to hear that Scott Miller is going to be getting better and he'll be back on the show again. Okay, folks, thanks for tuning in today.